Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As the church gathers this weekend for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, we do have some lengthier scriptures before us. Our Old Testament reading is going to be from Numbers 11. It's kind of scattered. Verses 4 through 6, verses 10 through 16, and then verses 24 through 29. The epistle text is going to be from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. There is the option of also reading the first 12 verses of the the chapter. So you'd be reading 1 through 20. And then the gospel text is Mark chapter 9, and that's verses 38 through 50. So as we look at the text today, we're going to start out in the book of Numbers. It's worth noting that the Israelites begin this chapter by complaining and grumbling against God. He responds actually by burning part of the camp. So as we start out, we're going to read verses 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, the rabble could be, I mean, you could take it as the grumbling Israelites. What actually rules that out is that the Israelites are separated out in the next sentence, right? The people of Israel also wept. So the rabble are separate from the people of Israel. The study Bible indicates that they might be non-Israelite slaves, The Israelites themselves were just slaves, so the likelihood of them, the slave, having slaves of their own in Egypt is probably small. I take this instead to be a reference to other people who were in Egypt at the same time, saw the plagues, and went with them. I mean, Exodus chapter 7 verse 5 indicates, for example, that the purpose of the plagues was so that the Egyptians would come to know that their false gods were exactly that, false gods, and that they would believe in Yahweh as the only God. So it is, it's believable, right, that as the ten plagues unfolded, people came to recognize Yahweh as the Lord, and when the Israelites left town, they went too. That there would have been other people Maybe Egyptian, maybe not, maybe other nationalities that were there at the same time. But that's who I would argue that this verse 4 rabble is a reference to. And so here they are. It's not just the Israelites who are rebelling against God and grumbling against him. Any non-Israelites among them are doing it too. They have a strong craving. And so grumbling, common, common practice of the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness for 40 years Here they're wishing they had meat to eat. You might remember Exodus 16. Uh, This is very similar to that one there. They said that would that they had died in Egypt. At least there they got to sit by the, the pot of the fire that was filled with meat. Well, God responded to that one by giving them manna. Here we are, sometime later, and they're grumbling about the food again. And the manna to them has become worthless. I mean, they despise it. They don't even want to look at it. And instead, they're remembering fish and cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. They're remembering tasty meals. The rightful question to ask is, 
did they even actually have these things? Right, they would have had some stuff, of course, but would they have had free fish? Maybe. I mean, the Nile River and the sources that they have, the ability to get to the sea, there would have been fish. But they probably had to buy them, right, in a market. The fish were not so abundant that there was no market for them. The food as well. Their hindsight reflection as they despise the things of God in the present should not be taken as good word, right? Just as it wasn't back in the book of Exodus. They are remembering things as they want to remember them rather than trusting in God to provide for them. So we skip over verses 7 through 9. And in that, we are missing the description of the manna. So the manna gets described in Scripture a couple of times. This is one of those moments, and again, we just we skip right over it. So that's an unfortunate miss for us as the people of God. Um, let me go ahead and just read it to you. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance, like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So there you have this nice description of, of the food that they had to eat and that they were now rebelling against. Verses 10 through 16 is the second chunk of this weekend's text. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of Yahweh blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to Yahweh, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom? as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. So we get more of this situation described out for us, that the people of God are weeping. We saw that in verse 4. But they're doing so at the entrance points to their tents. So this is public, right? You're not just like hiding in your bedroom crying. You're not hiding in your tent crying. Everyone's crying, and they're doing so visually. It's, it's noticeable. And so Moses sees this, and it, it displeases him. And Yahweh is angered by it because the people once again show that they do not trust him, even though he's done everything for them. Even though they have seen the ten plagues and all the miracles that he has worked before their very eyes, and have seen him part the Red Sea, 
and then crush Pharaoh's army. And there's no excuse for their behavior, right? Just as there's no excuse for your sins or mine. But here they are yet again. So Yahweh angry, and rightly so. But we don't get Yahweh's anger that boils over here. Instead, it's Moses, right? Verses 11 through 15. We get Moses really having it out with the Lord. So why have you dealt ill with your servant? Moses is blaming God for the burden of putting Moses in charge. Like if you really cared for your servant, you would have given him good work to do. That sort of thinking here, although it's not really the case, right? The Lord gives to all of his people work to do, and because we live in a broken and sinful world, that work is not always pleasant, often isn't. Why have I not found favor in your sight? It's mourning the hard task that has been laid before him. How does he not know? Right? He has found favor in God's sight. God has worked miracles through Moses. God has provided for him. God safeguarded him when he was a child. Moses ought not to be alive. Right? If his parents had simply followed the Egyptian law, which was wrongful, or, I mean, even as they eventually got rid of him because they, they couldn't hide him anymore and they were afraid, they stuck him in a river, he should have died but he didn't. God cared for him. God kept him, provided for him all this way, and yet he's saying he hasn't found favor in God's sight. This is a bit of grumbling and complaining from Moses, isn't it? That you lay the burden of all this people on me. Now, admittedly, there's a couple million people, and that is a burden. And they're a sinful bunch. So, there's it's not that there's no truth in what Moses is saying. Did I conceive all this people? Rhetorically, the answer is no. Did I give them birth? Again, same thing. That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom. Now maybe this is a reference to them acting like little brats. I mean, they're acting like spoiled children, aren't they? But the, the direct reference is that they are demanding food. So like a nursing infant screams and cries out to its mother for food, and she must care for them. She must hold the baby and, and feed the baby. That's the picture I think we're supposed to get from Moses saying this. But we can see the other side of it too. Is Moses to carry them for 40 years until they get to the promised land? And if so, where is he to get all the meat with which to feed them? Because they, they don't want milk. They want meat. Now, that's an interesting question. Um, where am I to get the meat to give all this people? It might bring your mind and your attention to the New Testament, to the work of Jesus when he fed the 5,000. You remember um, that he instructs the disciples to give them food to eat, and the disciples' response is essentially, where, where are we going to get that much bread? They suggest it would have been 200 denarii worth, 200 days pay worth of food at the market. So there's a, there's a connection there. God can do it, right? The Lord will do it here in the Old Testament. The Lord will do it again in the New Testament. He will provide for his people. 
Moses then says, verse 14, I am not able to carry all this people alone. What's wrong with that statement? He's not alone. Never has been. Yahweh is with him. It is Yahweh that bears the burden of this people. It is Yahweh that carries them. Moses is just a servant through whom God works. The Lord doesn't need Moses. The Lord could have worked without him. He's choosing to work through him. Just as today. I mean, the Lord doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he chooses to work through us as a part of his family. The burden is too heavy for me. If it was truly just Moses alone, then that, yeah, that statement's true. But it's not. Again, Yahweh is with him. It is Yahweh who provides. It is Yahweh who cares. Now, regardless, God's going to respond to that in kind. He's going to take care of Moses the way Moses is requesting, just as he takes care of the people. Well, sort of. We'll get back to that. So, if you will treat me like this, so if this is how it's going to be, Kill me. That's a bold request, a bold prayer. He finds it favorable. If, if Moses has favor in the sight of Yahweh, kill me. Why? So that I may not see my wretchedness. I don't know that I like the ESV's translation, that word wretchedness there. In the, the Hebrew word is simply the word for evil. Uh, it's ra'ah that I may not see my evil or my misery or distress or harm. So there's a couple of ways that you could go with this. You could look at that wickedness, that evil or harm, as being Moses' own. So like perhaps his failure, his inability to carry the people, and so he has failed to, to care for them. You could look at it the other way as well, though. What's going to happen to Moses if he doesn't give the people food. What is this rabble and this strong craving and this people of Israel weeping going to bring about? They're going to rebel against him and seek to kill him. In fact, they will pick up stones to stone him just a couple chapters after this one. So perhaps we should look at that wretchedness at the end of this verse with the translation of harm or misery and and look at it in the sense of how the Israelites will will harm him, perhaps kill him, if the Lord does not help. So the Lord does though, verse 16, he gives him someone to share the load with. Now in fairness, he had that in Aaron already, right? So he wasn't alone in that sense either. But he's going to give him 70 others, 70 elders of Israel and Moses is instructed to bring those 70 men to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where essentially they're going to be consecrated. They're going to be set apart. They're going to be marked as holy for this role. They are going to be authorized by God himself. So God is going to split up the work. Now again, we skip over some verses here. We're going to skip over verses 17 through 23, where we see God explain what he's going to do, how he's going to take some of the spirit of Moses and put it on these men. We also see him express how he's going to feed the Israelites, but it's going to be a punishment. So they're not going to just eat well for you know two or three or four days or a week. 
the Lord is going to feed them to the full for an entire month until the food is coming out of their nostrils and they loathe it. So the Lord is going to punish the people for their failure to trust in him, for their failure to look to him to provide for them, and instead constant grumbling and complaining against him. So certainly a punishment. And as we see the response, Moses doubts. Right? Moses continues to assume he has to do it. And so his response to God when God said this was along the lines of, where are we going to get all that meat? I mean, where are we going to find the, the livestock for that? Or maybe not even we, where am I supposed to find all of that? Now, interestingly, we don't pick up on that idea for the rest of the text today. We go to the, the splitting of the load. So as we look at verse 24 through 29, we conclude our text. So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were from those who registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all Yahweh's people were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit on them. All right, so that's the end of the text that we have to work with together this weekend in our churches. So Moses goes out and he relays the word of God to the people. Now the people probably care a lot less about Moses and the dividing up of the authority, although that does matter. They probably, more immediately, because of their crying and weeping, care about the conversation about the food, although that has now been turned into a punishment upon them. So he tells them what God has said, and then he takes the 70 elders, as he has been told to do, he leads them to the tent of meeting, and they're consecrated. Right? Yahweh comes down in the cloud, speaks to Moses, This is not the first time. The cloud has filled the temple, well, the tabernacle, before. And Moses has been with God in that cloud before up on Mount Sinai. So the cloud, a a symbol of the Lord, I don't even know if symbol is the right word, a theophany, God appearing, Greek, theos, God, phanos, reveal, or something like that. So a revelation of God. God chooses here to manifest himself, to reveal himself as a cloud. And he does. And he speaks to Moses. The words that he speaks to him not given to us here, but he tells him something. And he takes the spirit and he puts it on the elders. That spirit, by the way, um, this one's a hard one for us to, to grapple with because it does not appear to be the way that the Lord works for his people today. So when we talk about the Lord putting his spirit in us today, we're talking about baptism, we're talking about the creation of faith, we're talking about 
this pouring out of this gift from God and how he forgives our sins and we rejoice in these things. But there does appear, both in the Old and the New Testament, to be a, I don't know if I want to call it a second, pouring out of the Spirit, but there seems to be an additional an additional work of the Spirit, an additional blessing of the Spirit that enables people to do things people normally wouldn't be able to do. So the apostles have the Spirit poured out upon them on Pentecost, tongues of fire, and they suddenly start preaching in other languages. A very unique miracle. The apostles have the Spirit of God poured out upon them and they're able to do miracles. They're able to heal and to cast out demons. And it's such an incredible thing that uh, there's a magician in Acts who, who sees it and he, he offers to pay for it. To which he gets rightly rebuked. And this is seen here as well, that there's this special pouring out of the Holy Spirit that gives the authority from the Lord to certain people to do certain things. And that, that was seen, again, New Testament, the laying on of hands. And, and the argument among the church today, this is going to come up in the epistle as well, the argument among the Lutheran church today is that this just doesn't happen anymore. Um, but we'll save that for the epistle. So, as we look to this now, um, what is it that they are able to do? Well, that, that special pouring out of the Spirit, that special giving of the Spirit to these 70 men allowed them to prophesy, to prophesy is to speak the Word of God. And they are able to do this, and that is, it's a one-time thing, right? They did not continue doing it. So, why did they get to do it this one time? Well, it was a revelation of their authority that the people of Israel would see this and they would know to listen to these men. Perhaps more so, because there's no indication necessarily that Israel is gathered there, perhaps more so this is for Moses to see it and to recognize that the Lord has been faithful to him and has answered his, well, his prayer, his grumbling prayer, but his prayer nonetheless, that the Lord is faithful. This this is certainly seen by Moses and perhaps by some of the Israelites also. Definitely seen by the 70. Now, why 70? Um, don't want to dig into numbers too much, but 70 is 7 times 10. 7 is that biblical number for perfection. So we think of the Lord himself. 10 is the number for completion. So like the perfect completion here. That's a pretty good number. Anyway. Um, what we note in verse 26, the final paragraph, is that not everybody came out. So out of those 70 elders, two of them did not come out to the camp. Well, they didn't come out from the camp to the tent. So, okay, this is admittedly in my mind unclear. Is there 70 or are there 72 of these guys? So were there 68 of them at the tent or were there 70 of them and these are two additional ones? I don't know. Um, I don't think the, the Hebrew text helps in that regard. The English text certainly doesn't clear that one up either. Eldad and Medad are their names. They're staying in the camp, and the Spirit chose to rest upon them also. You could rightly ask, okay, why did they not go out to the tent? 
The answer to that is unknown. I mean, seemingly most likely is that Moses told them to do this and they rejected it. But the Lord chose them anyway. That would be, you know, much like God speaking to Jonah and telling him to go do something and Jonah rejecting it, but the Lord following through with a great fish, some vomit, and then Jonah finally goes. So it's hard to say. Uh, some good unknowns to this text today. Um, but they are, well, here's another unknown. They're registered. What's that mean? Are they somehow registered uh, as a group of 70, as, as actual elders and leaders of the people? Or is this simply a reference to the registration of the, essentially the able-bodied men of Israel? Um, I believe it's 20 years and older, seen back in Numbers chapter 1. That number for the people comes out to 603,550. So they're certainly in that number, but if, if there's another registration in mind here, it, it's not said. So another unknown. And as they're in the camp there, they start prophesying too. And having seen it, an unknown young man runs out to Moses, gives the report, And Joshua hearing it, so Joshua has been with Moses for a while, has been assisting him. He's going to be his successor, right, moving forward. Having heard this, Joshua responds, My Lord Moses, stop them. That's an interesting thought. Why? If there are people prophesying the name of the Lord, and they're actually speaking the word of God, why stop them? Moses seems to think it would be for his own sake, like Joshua's trying to help Moses preserve power, but that's the exact opposite of what's happening, right? Moses wants to give some up. He doesn't want the burden. So the Lord is divvying it up. Moses is good with this. Would that all Yahweh's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And he has, right? This is talked about in, I think it's Joel chapter 2, and we pick up on it in the book of Acts after Pentecost, that this very thing has occurred, right? That all of God's people would be prophets. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Well, again, in, in this sense, what does that mean? That's it, not saying anybody can be a priest or anybody can do whatever they want to do. To prophesy is to speak the word of God. God gives you his word, you speak it. Well, guess who God has given his word to today? Everyone. You have his word, I have his word, we all have our Bibles. That's his word. You have it. And he's given you the responsibility as one of his disciples to go out and share it. Tell your neighbor the good news about Jesus. Show them where they need to repent. Show them where the gospel actually hits the road and matters as their sins are forgiven. I mean, we have this gift from the Lord. We are called to be his children, his servants. And he has poured out his spirit upon us too. Again, not necessarily in the laying on of hands sense where we can now perform miracles, but in our baptisms, he has poured out his spirit upon us. And he continues to pour out his his spirit upon us. He continues to strengthen us in our faith as we gather in his house, as we receive his supper, his body and blood. So the Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. And for Moses, that's probably the point of this chapter. Even in Moses grumbling, 
Yahweh is still faithful. We move into our epistle reading from James chapter 5. Again, the basic reading here is going to be verses 13 through 20, but you have the option, uh, your pastor does, of including verses 1 through 12. Now, as I look at the text, as I was doing the study here, if I were preaching this text, this reading, I would probably preach on the optional part, really. But let's go ahead and look at everything and kind of work our way through it. So our first paragraph is going to be verses 1 through 6, so roughly half of that optional reading. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, so what we're seeing here is, well, it's judgment, right? This is James speaking the word of the law harshly and bluntly against those who are wealthy. Bear in mind, it's not that wealth is evil. That's not the point here, right? It's not what James says. The Lord gives us resources, and we are to use those resources to help others. But look at the people we're looking at. What did they use their resources to do? Right? That's going to be the point. Your riches have rotted. Your silver and gold have corroded. Well, how does that happen? It happens when you store it up and you don't use it. Sound like the parable of the talents already? The, the third person in the parable. So the first guy got five, the second guy got two, the third guy got one, and he was so afraid he went and he buried it. He took the stuff entrusted to him by the Lord, and he hid it. Similarity, without a doubt. Your garments are moth-eaten. This goes back to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus tells us not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but rather to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. What are the treasures of heaven? It's Jesus. I mean, cling to Christ and he will give you himself. He will give you life, which comes from him, and it never ends. And that is worth far more than anything in this world ever could be. And so we then read uh, from Jesus' own words there in Matthew 6. He says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So these people, as we come to James chapter 5, their hearts are in the world. Their hearts are in their stuff. And so it will be evidence against them when they come before the judgment throne of God. Their works will be shown, revealed, made known how they have wronged their neighbors instead of loving their neighbors. And so you start to read up about it, right? The wages of the laborers who mowed your field which you kept back by fraud. 
So instead of rightly paying their worker, they held it back? That could have taken any number of forms, it doesn't specify, but simply not paying them at all? Or agreeing to a price and then paying them something less? Or pretending to give them what you offered them, but actually withholding some of it? I mean, if you think of... It's hard for us to picture that today because of the way our paid checks are typically done, but if if you were paid in cash for your job and your boss actually handed you a giant stack of ones for your paycheck, it would be hard to sit there and count it and make sure it was all there. Some people would, and they'd make the boss wait. Maybe the boss would learn his lesson there and give him bigger bills the next time. But others would just take it and go without recognizing if they've been really, well, frauded. So we're not told how this is playing out. We're simply told that it's happening and that that, that withheld wage, that fraud is going to cry out against them. So evidence from before. But it's also like Abel's blood from Genesis chapter 4. As his blood is spilled by his brother Cain, that blood then cried out from the ground to God himself. And the Lord heard that cry. So we see that as the cries of the harvesters now reach the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And the Lord, when he hears the prayers of his people, when he hears the suffering of his people, the Lord responds and the Lord delivers. You cannot hide your wickedness from God. He sees this and he will act. Now, in that, I did skip over something in verse 3 that I meant to cover. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Note that even when James is writing this, maybe the 50s, I don't remember the dating of James. I don't think it would stretch much into the 60s because he doesn't live much longer than that. Anyway, um, even then it's considered to be the last days. This is the Christian belief. This is what the scriptures teach. It is what the Lutheran church confesses that ever since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven, we have been living in the last days. And that Christ could return at any moment, that the final judgment could return upon us at any moment. Um, And that really in the book of Revelation, that's what we see happening and playing out. That, you know, thousand year period that so many focus on in the church today, we're in that now. It's the last days, and we're in them. That's why so many evil things happen all around us each and every day. That's why there's always earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, just as Jesus spoke about the end times. Because we're in them. All right, verse 5. This is the law, probably, that I would preach as I would preach this text. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Living in the United States, we are probably the wealthiest in the world. I mean, yeah, if you look at articles ranking such things, the U.S. is not technically number one. Um, Gross domestic product per capita kind of a calculation. But we're high up there. And in reality, if you are in the, well, even the poorest among us in this country, are some of the wealthiest people in the world. I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 
earning, I think it's like $30,000 a year, puts you in the top 1% of income earners globally. So, yeah, we are luxurious. And even the poor among us, not all of them, some of them truly have the hardships. But even the poor among us have luxuries and and live in self-indulgence. Like, think of a smartphone and everything it enables you to do. Even the homeless among us have smartphones, which is stunning. That we have cars and we can actually travel from one end of the country to the other if we want to. That we have homes that not only keep us safe from the rain, but they keep us at the proper temperature that we want to live at. We can keep food for months on end without it going bad. We live in luxury and in self-indulgence because when you look at your paycheck, sit down and look at your budget, how much of your check are you spending on yourself? If you're not doing a budget, I would recommend doing it. Good idea. You're a steward of God's resources. He's entrusted them to you. Can you give an account of how you're using them? It's a good idea to budget so that you actually get good at using what he's given you to use rather than just in one ear out the other. But when you do that, when you actually examine it, you'll notice where most of your money goes. And by and large, it goes to me, myself, and I. So this is a challenge for us, very much so, that we have fattened our hearts in a day of slaughter. So a day of slaughter the last days where there's death all around us and yet we're thriving. I'm not going to say that thriving in the midst of the slaughter is something to be repented of, but self-indulgence is. Living in luxury may not be wrong per se. But not being generous is. So there's challenges here for us. And then verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's a really interesting phrasing, um, especially in English. I'm going to pull it up here in Greek real quick. I didn't look at it before I started the show um, just to see. So this is James 5. It's verse 6. Is that singular? Murdered the Righteous. Yeah, I mean, that's a singular adjective. Well, turned into a noun, so the righteous one. And if you heard that language, where would you go, right? Who's the righteous one? We would say that's Jesus. He does not resist you. That's also singular. So the ESV has translated that that Greek phrase correctly, although they, you know, did the, in the newer ESV, the righteous person. That's... It's masculine. (laughs) I mean, simply put, it's the masculine here. But I would take that to be Jesus, and I think that we can certainly read that as Jesus. What have they done? What have we done with our sin? We condemned and murdered the righteous one. That's what all of our sin does. Jesus died on the cross to take away your sin, your self-indulgence. We put him there, and he didn't resist it. He willingly laid down his life for us. Now, you can read this another way, too. 
And I think that's going to be more in the lines of what we see in Luke chapter 16. The parable? Hard to say. It's never actually spoken of as a parable. It looks like one, but has some features that don't. It might have some reality to it. Anyway, Lazarus and the rich man from Luke 16. The man who is poor and sits at the gate. The dogs lick his wounds. And yet the the rich man ignores him and lives in his luxury and self-indulgence. They both die. And the rich man goes to hell. But Lazarus goes to paradise. That picture fits. And... Well, how much of it is true of us? That we would take, and in this sense, righteous isn't a child of God, right? We're not perfect on our own, but we are righteous. We are God's children, so righteous as his child. How often have we looked at at a righteous one, a disciple, and refused to aid them, refused generosity to them? Oh, they don't deserve it. Oh, they just squander it. They'll just use it for this thing and that thing. We do that quite a bit. And in so doing, we cause them harm. So there's a lot there. That's spent a lot of time just on that first paragraph. So let's go ahead and jump into the second paragraph. We'll take verse 12 with it. Um, This is the rest of that optional text for the weekend. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So be patient. (laughs) That's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, That's a biblical virtue without a doubt. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, which is going to happen when? Soon, right? Jesus promised soon. So we keep on that. We we trust him in his word. And we pray for it too, as we're taught to do both in the Lord's Prayer and in the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 20. See how the farmer waits. So the farmer plants the crop and he doesn't act too hastily, right? If he harvests it too soon, it's not going to be any good. He waits. He's patient. He watches the the rains fall. He watches God care for him. And then he goes to work on the harvest. And so we are called also to be patient. And interestingly enough, God is, of course, abundantly patient. That shows up in 2 Peter 3, I think it's verse 9. God is patient with us. In fact, that's why he hasn't returned yet. He's still being patient with sinners. We are told to be patient and to establish our hearts. 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Soon, um, establish here in Greek also could be confirm or strengthen. So strengthen your hearts, probably the, the way I would look at that the strongest. Look to the Lord in all things. Trust in him in all things. Right? Not, not in riches, not in this world, but put your trust in God. And do not grumble against each other because what does that cause? Right? What was Moses concerned about in Numbers 11 when the people were grumbling and he, he said to God, you know, go ahead and kill me so I don't see my misery? When we grumble against one another, when we are discontent with one another, and this was James 4, right? You, you end up murdering. What causes quarrels and fights among you? You, you? you covet and you do not have. We murder each other. Both physically actually doing it, that does happen among Christians today, but much more frequently, the hatred that we feel for one another. And Jesus labels that murder in Matthew chapter 5. We kill one another in our hearts. So don't grumble that you may not be judged. Again, hatred and violence showing up. Because the judge is standing at the door, and that goes directly connects to verse 8 right before it. The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. Same thing. The Lord is the judge. To be at hand is to be right there. To be at the door is to be right there. Basically synonymous sentences. Then he points us to an example of patience and suffering by showing us the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They spoke whatever God gave them to speak, and then they waited and they suffered. Jeremiah would be a great example of that, as he was opposed frequently. Um, He was harmed physically eventually he was killed you know after the exile who went down to Jerusalem not from he didn't go to Jerusalem he left from Jerusalem down into Egypt actually um, so some of the Jews were able to basically slip away and not go to Babylon but the Jews there killed him because they didn't want to hear him prophesying anymore so patience suffering suffering in patience Um, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, those who are able to continue waiting throughout the whole process rather than quitting. Um, Like Jonah, for example. I'm not sure we'll see Jonah in paradise. That's a whole other reading, but we don't all remain steadfast, unfortunately. So he points us to the steadfastness of Job as another example and says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Job hadn't, right? Job has not seen the cross of Christ. Job has not seen the empty tomb. He doesn't know about Jesus' death that forgives all sins. He doesn't know about the resurrection of the dead. But he looked forward to the Christ coming. He looked forward to who the Messiah was and that he would redeem his people, even if he didn't understand it. Just like we don't understand everything today. I don't understand how the Lord's Supper works, but it does. Just because I don't get it doesn't stop it. I don't understand how the Trinity works. But it's still God. My lack of understanding doesn't change God. So 
we have seen the purpose of the Lord, so we can be patient. How much more patient can we be than Job was? Because we know what the Lord has done for us. We know what the Lord will do for us as he rescues us, redeems us, and brings us to paradise. The Lord is compassionate and he is merciful. He redeems us and he spares us. Verse 12 stands kind of on its own here in the text. Above all, do not swear. That's not like swearing as in cussing, but swearing as in taking an oath. Don't swear by heaven or earth or any other. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is important for the church today. This is how we live as Christians today. We are people of the word. Primarily, that's God's word, but it's also our word, right? Because when you are a person of your word, you have that integrity about you, you can tell even the non-believer, even the, the atheist in your life, you can say something to them and they know they can trust you. They'll take you at your word. They'll believe you. And because of that, you can speak God's word to them too. But if they can't trust your word, they're not going to hear God's word from you. So there's an importance to us being speakers of the truth because we have been given the real truth, the greatest truth, in a sense, the only truth, to speak. And to be deceitful, that hampers our witness. So that's important. But what does this do? Well, it, it sets us up as people that can simply say yes or no to things. And we don't have to take oaths. And really, we can't take oaths anyway. An oath binds something to you. Think of it like collateral on a house, like on a loan. If you wanted, if you wanted to get a loan for a couple hundred thousand dollars to start your business, well, the bank is probably going to ask for some kind of collateral, something that ensures them that they're at least going to get their side of the deal worked. So, you take out the loan. You put your house down as the collateral, you fail to pay back the loan, they get your house. In a sense, an oath is like this. You are binding something to yourself. And there's nothing in this creation that actually belongs to us. There is nothing that we can bind to ourselves. I cannot bind God to myself. I, I cannot even bind my dog to myself. The Lord has entrusted my house and my family, my dog. He's entrusted those all to me, and to, I'm to care for them, not to, not to bind them. And that's the danger here with oath-taking. God can take an oath because he's God, and he is him. So he, can, he, he takes oaths by himself because, well, there's, there's nothing higher. And so he, he is faithful and will keep it. All right, now we can actually go to the part that all of our churches would read from, um, verses 13 through 18, and we'll double back for 19 and 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. 
and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, this is a tough paragraph. Um, normally, as a preacher, I like to preach the hardest text in order to help people understand it. But personally, honestly, this is one I'm not sure I myself am all that comfortable with as a text. This is one that causes me to struggle. So, the first part, verse 13, I mean, this is good. Is anyone suffering? Pray. All right. God hears our prayers and he answers. He delivers us. Um, this goes back to verse 4 that we read earlier together. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So whatever your circumstances are, trust in God. Rejoice. This is like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is good, right? And this is fitting with all of Scripture. Is anyone among you sick? Yes, right? Plenty. Let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay. So far, we're, we're good with this too, right? For the elders, the leaders, those in charge to come to those who are sick and to, to pray for them, that's good. Even the anointing with oil. We don't do that one in most Lutheran circles any longer. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, taking some oil, pouring it on the person. It was the Old Testament anointing, setting someone apart as a prophet, a priest, or a king. So, you know, anointing them, marking them as one of Christ uh, in the name of the Lord, right? You're marking them for healing by God himself. Uh, that's good. The Catholic Church still does the pouring of oil um, in their extreme unction or last rites, depending on how you want to call it. So there is some of that still seen in the church, but... Last rites isn't often for, for physical healing. It's, it's preparing a person for, for death and burial. It's where we get to verse 15 and 16 that we're going to probably have some more struggles. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This is seen in Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus will often tell the people that he heals as he's healing them, your faith has made you well. So there is something to that. There is something to prayer. These are good things. The Lord hears. The Lord answers. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will forgive. I would guess a lot of pastors that preach this text are going to focus on those two phrases. The Lord will raise him up is not necessarily an earthly healing, but could be taken as the resurrection idea. Um, and the forgiveness of sins points us to the cross. So there you go, death and resurrection right there. Um, other pa pastors, preachers are going to go to verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. That's a really nice phrase, and there's truth to it. Prayer works. God hears and delivers. He answers prayer. Now, all of this is going to take us back to chapter 4, verse 4. That we ask, but we do not receive because we ask wrongly in order to spend it on our passions. And maybe that's the point of challenge that makes this difficult today. Maybe we don't ask rightly. 
Because how many of us have prayed for somebody to be healed and they haven't been healed? It's a challenge, without a doubt. So like I said, I'm struggling with this one myself. Um, you're welcome if you've got some input to, to share with me. I'd, I'd appreciate it. Um, keep praying, because prayer does work. The Lord does hear prayer. Um, we are taught to continue to pray. Like the persistent widow in the Gospels, just keep praying. The Lord hears. The Lord answers. He then shows us an example of this in Elijah, who, just being a man like we are, prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed it would rain, and it rained. First Kings 17 and 18, um, as he prophesies against Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, is when this occurs. And you get the widow of Zarephath there in the middle of that, that account. All right, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I'm confident again. Whew, tough text. This one I know. Um, so if you wander, so if you are to stray from the church, you're the lost sheep, right? If we are wandering away from our faith and someone brings us back, you know, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that brother who sought us out, who, who brought us back, who, who helped us see the error of our ways and how we were doing something dangerous to ourselves. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul. That is the wanderer's soul, right? This is not like you're doing something good for yourself. Don't, don't go out looking for people who are in need of Christ and doing so like as a thing that you can boast about. Right, we want we want to see more people in paradise because we we want people to be in paradise. So um, this is the wanderer's soul that is saved, and it covers a multitude of sins. That's a reference to Christ on the cross, which covers all of our sins. So you have you've walked away, your sins are there, you've got your sins, and and yet you you come to repentance. Somebody brings you back, and and all of your sins are forgiven by Christ. What a wondrous gift indeed. As we go to the gospel account, it is Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's our connection point from the Gospel to the Old Testament text. Joshua hears the report that there's people prophesying in the camp and he thinks that Moses needs to put a stop to it. John hears the report that, well, sees it, that there are people casting out demons in the name of Jesus and they try to stop it. Jesus is not jealous for this. Moses was not jealous for it. When people faithfully serve in the name of the Lord, the, Lord, the Lord's work is done. And there's no need to be jealous of that. There's no need to try to stop it. Um, so they see this person casting out demons, and Jesus says, do not stop him. Let him do it. As he does this mighty work, another for, name for a miracle, his strength, his faith is strengthened. 
And that's what this is about, right? He he will not soon afterward be able to speak evil of me as a reference to the fact that doing this miracle is going to strengthen that man's faith all the more. And as your faith is strengthened, it's harder for the devil to attack it. So this is a this is a boost to that man, to his faith, to his ability to serve the Lord. This is a good thing. And then we get the picture from Jesus that often, in a sense, gets repeated, right? If you're not for us, you're against us, kind of language we hear a lot today. For the one who is not against us is for us. In a sense, there's only two options, right? And we know that's the truth of Scripture. You're either for the Lord, you either believe in God, or you don't. You're either going to paradise or you're going to hell. So there's only these two options. The one who is not against us, so the one who is not on the devil's side of things, is for us because he's a believer. So take him at his his word, Jesus here, take him at his word. Now he says in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So whoever is willing to care for the disciples, whoever is willing to care for one of God's people is cared for by God. That reward idea we were just looking at at the beginning of the epistle text, uh, storing up treasures in heaven rather than here on earth, that generosity idea, caring for others. Well, I mean, God cares for his people and he does it through us, oftentimes. In the next paragraph, we're going to be immediately jumping into the opposite idea. So you've got the, the one who cares for disciple. And then you're going to get the one who harms the disciple. So let's read that, verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where there, worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So you see the opposite in verse 42 of the one who does not care for, but instead harms a child of God, a disciple, seeking to cause him to sin. You know, sinning is bad and wrong. Causing someone else to sin, like actually being that source of temptation for another, is a terrible thing. You're sinning in doing so because you're harming your neighbor. But you're also causing them to be harmed. So rather than one person now, it's two people involved in sin. Anyway, it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck, he'd thrown into a sea. This is not a reference to some small rock. Or you think of the mortar pestle idea that they might have used to grind some things. This is a giant millstone. If you've ever seen uh, pictures or films that depict a, a donkey walking in a circle to to keep the mill going and, and spin that large stone. That's the picture here. 
That's the referent. It's a it's a donkey pulled stone or turned stone, however you want to phrase that. This is big. It's bigger than man is going to work on his own, and it's just strapped to you and you're thrown into the into the water. You you're done, right? That's going to kill you. The referent here is it would be better to die physically. It would be better to die the first death than to have another sin added that causes you to die a second death, which is a reference to um, the everlasting death that we we hopefully will not endure. Um, if we trust in Christ, we will not endure. The second death is hell. So that's the warning here, right? It would be better to to die now than to go to hell. And Jesus then expands upon that. And this is this is a list a lot of people struggle with. Show your hand, cause you to sin, cut it off. Better to enter life crippled than to go to hell. And he does it a couple of times over, right? The foot, the eye. He just gives you a list. And Pastor, do we take this literally? I'm I'm gonna tell you yes. Most people will say no, it's a metaphor. I'm gonna tell you yes because when you realize what it would mean to take it literally, you get to the point that Jesus is making. What would happen if you literally did this? If your hand caused you to sin, you cut it off. Well, then your other hand caused you to sin, that got cut off. Your eyes caused you to sin, so they were gouged out. Your tongue caused you to sin, so it was cut off. Your, your feet, you know, you kicked your brother, whatever. All these sins that you're accumulating... And most of us, that would probably just be one day, right? What's going to be the outcome? You're going to be left with just your nubs. You're not going to be able to move. You're not going to be able to talk. All that will be left is your your heart and your mind. And you will be sitting there. You will be angry with God. And you will still sin against him. And you will still sin against your neighbor. Because why? It's your heart. It's your mind. Whichever way you want to look at that. That's the problem. As Jesus mentions that all all evil things that defile us come out of the heart. I mean, that was just a couple of weeks ago we had that text. And this is the point. So if you take it literally, ultimately you would have to cut off your heart. You would have to die. So when we see that picture, it's just what he said in verse 42, right? It would be better to die than to sin. That's the picture here. You don't want to be cast into hell. And so, the other part, which has impact on this text, people ask if this is enduring. Like, does this actually mean what it, it seems? Like, if, if, I'm, if I'm missing a leg in this life now, when I get to paradise, I'll still be missing a leg? Ultimately, I don't have the answer for that. But who's the only resurrected person we know right now who's in paradise? That would be Jesus. And Jesus' body does still bear the scars, right? The disciples saw the resurrected body. Thomas was invited to take his fingers and his hands and place them in the holes. Now, in fairness, Jesus is God. And as we will be in paradise forevermore, him bearing his scars still will be a reminder to us of his great love for us 
and that he died to save us. So there's intentionality to that that doesn't necessarily need to be carried over onto us. But that conversation does at least fit with what we just had here in the text. So do we take the list literally? Yes, only to realize that it means all of you must die. Die to self and live to Christ. Very different picture. We are not here to live this life for me. You are not here to live this life for you. We're not here to live in self-indulgence, the James text, um, but rather to love our neighbors. So use your hands and your feet and your eyes and your tongue. Use whatever things the Lord has given to you to care for those around you. That is a fairly common thing that we've got this weekend together. All right, then the salt at the end. Maybe faith here to connect it with. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, so if the Christian has lost their faith, how will you make it salty again? And, and you can't, right? Salt that's lost its saltiness is done. It's, it's just thrown on the road. It's trampled. It's, it's gone. And so if we lose our faith, well, Hebrews 6 would say it's not recoverable. The one who has tasted the gifts of Christ and then abandoned Christ, rejected him again. That's a tough text too. So we've got some tough texts to, to look at in that regard this weekend. Um, but at the same time, lots of other things that we can clearly understand. And, and there's a lot of great, beautiful theology for us to consider. Yeah.